Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. joining us tonight and sharing your precious time with us. We have to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. If you haven't heard his voice or experienced his tales, seek him out on the internet. He's Ken Quiethawk. And listen to some of his CDs that are really profound and, and educational, enlightening and enjoyable, all in the same time. Mark has a great show tonight. We're going to be talking about all sorts of wonderful things. Uh, so settle back, get your seatbelt on, because some of this stuff is kind of fun, and it may be a little <clears throat> bit of a, a ride here and there, uh, but it, it's my kind of show because it has everything from flying humano humanoids to all sorts of other stuff, UFOs, of course. Uh, so do set back, settle in, take your shoes off, and get comfy because Mark's got a great show. Okay, Mark? It's all yours. How are you, how's your week going? So far, so good. Okay. Good. Uh, well, last night's show was, uh, you know, Grand Slam discussion. <laughs> yes, I had a lot of fun with, with him. He was an amazing author, and um, we had a lot in common, so it was it was kind of fun to compare notes on a lot of different topics. But uh, you've got a great guest tonight, so I'm very excited to, to listen to what she's got to say. Okay, yeah. The, you know, last, last week's show was you know, more of a scientific look at the lower Mississippi River Valley. Uh, tonight we're going uh, to the... Uh, Upper Mississippi River Valley. Um, everyone knows that when we have guests from you know, like the Great Lakes region, uh, the topics get weirder. I, I, don't, I don't know what that's about, but uh, yeah, yeah. How, how these guests find me? Uh, how do I meet them? What? Why does it seem like Switchy is a common denominator? Uh, the 
does Keel's conclusion to the Mothman prophecy, we are meant to be crazy, apply to us? I, 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 this is, this one's, who knows where this one's going tonight? But uh, anyhow, uh, Z- Zelia Edgar is making her debut with us, and we have a uh, couple more projects with her in the works. So I think she'll be uh, returning soon. Um, you may have seen her presentations at the last few Van Meter visitor conferences. Uh, she hosts uh, j- just an, another tinfoil hat on the Paranormal UK radio network. Uh, Zelia is also a vlogger. You can find her just another tinfoil hat um, videos on YouTube. Uh, Zelia has had a lifelong interest in the paranormal and she is working on writing projects. Uh, I think you can find some on the AP Magazine um, website with our buddy uh, Brent Rains. And uh, she was also a uh, Wisconsin MUFON investigator. So, hi, Zelia. How are you? Hi, fine, thanks. I'm really excited to be on the show tonight. Well, you know, we are very glad you're here. It's been a long time coming, so it's we're glad you're here. So, um, yeah, we'll plug some of the uh, vlogging uh, topics in a little bit, and uh, you know your radio show shortly, but, uh, you know, maybe we ought to, uh, just get right into some of these, uh, uh, your primary, uh, focus, you know, like the Van Meter visitor, uh, case, um, you know, that one really well, um, you know, we've heard just a little bit about it, uh, here on Nightlight, but um, you know, th- this was what er- early 20th century flying humanoid uh, case. It, you know, just kind of walk us through what happened there. You know, where 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 did the sighting occur? Oh, sure thing. Well, yes, it did occur across five days um, in the later portion of 1903. And the Van Meter Visitor is really a very just interesting, interesting case. Um, and, of course, it was kind of dug up by Backroads lore crews. So that's Chad Lewis, Kevin Nelson, and Noah Voss. And it occurred in Van Meter, Iowa, so about 20 minutes away from Des Moines. And it's amazing because aside from just the Van Meter Visitor, which was this um, tall, winged humanoid, even though a lot of sightings actually they claimed it looked like an antediluvian beast or kind of like um, a pterosaur, I guess you would say, a pterodactyl. Aside from just sightings of the creature, you also have a lot of high strangeness, you know, stuff that we do tend to associate with more John Keel's work. Um, mm-hmm. The first unexplained sighting in the area was actually lights in the sky, 
And then when people were seeing this beast or monster, there was even a case of missing time after the beast apparently exuded some sort of mist and it rendered uh, the witness just absolutely, they completely lost track of time for who knows how long. Uh, And two, the creature itself was also very strange. Aside from looking like some sort of pterodactyl or pterosaur, it had a horn on its head that had this red light, which it would kind of direct like a beam. And so you have this thing show up, and it really terrorized the town for five days. Lots of people saw it, lots of upstanding members of the community. Uh, The bank manager even, thinking that the lights in the sky perhaps were burglars, took to sleeping in the bank and ended up seeing the creature and shooting out the windows of the bank, trying to get it. He was so frightened. And then you would actually have at the end of this run a posse of the townsfolk kind of gather like in a Frankenstein movie and go after it. They chased the thing into a coal mine. And from there, it just absolutely vanished, never to be, well, we think never to be seen again. Apparently there have been a few recurrent sightings over the years, but nothing, of course, like those five days in 1903. Okay. So the public's reaction was, sounded more of a fear-based reaction to it. Um, Was there any reports of uh, or someone had um, some kind of epiphany from it, you know, is, is it you know just more of you know, like you were saying they were frightened by the, you know, the monster and the townsfolk grabbed their pitchforks and ran it out of town. That was the predominant vibe I would say from that time period, and it's interesting too because I've heard and I have I've been to the Van Meter Visitor Festival two years in a row now, and last year I presented and was really excited to do so, and. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of people ask, are you sure this wasn't just, you know, a journalistic hoax, which was very prevalent at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that actually in Van Meter, the newspapers at the time, people were saying, stay away, don't come to town because we've got this monster. So as far as, you know, because many, like lots of lake monsters too are used to kind of draw publicity in. And this was the exact opposite. They're actually saying, no, this isn't a good thing, stay away. So there was a definite fear response at the time and that was across the board as far as I've seen. Okay. No, I just want it it uh I, I've never been to Iowa. Why did the visitor come to Van Meter? What is there some kind of uh, ley line energy, you know, uh, you know, we'll get into that, you know, the you know, UFOs and nuclear power plants, uh, you know, that's, you know, a, a modern uh, correla- correlation, but is there something there in town that would attract this flying humanoid? That is a really good question. There are, I believe, a lot of similarities you can draw between the Van Meter creature and the Mothman of Point Pleasant. 
However, it was on a much smaller scale. And the interesting thing, the thing that really intrigued me is that, you know, the Mothman is so tied to the Silver Bridge tragedy. And in Van Meter, there really was no large-scale tragedy. That was the first thing that I was kind of looking out for reading through the book for the first time. However, the similarity really is that apparently Van Meter is kind of a hotspot for lots of different types of paranormal activity. It just seems to kind of have a more than usual amount of uh, hauntings. Apparently, there's a nearby river that supposedly has sightings of like a sea serpent or obviously river serpent in that case, Mm. Uh, much like how the area around Point Pleasant has lots of, you know, a history of UFO sightings and other creature sightings in addition to Mothman. So I believe there is a similarity there. And this really does, it brings up the question of, yeah, why do certain things happen in certain places at certain times as opposed to others, which I think is kind of going to be developing to more of an important question as, you know, further along we get into researching the paranormal. Well, you know, with, you know, uh, Point Pleasant, uh, all the, you know, Mothman sightings, well, you know, all, all, obviously with the uh, uh, Silver Bridge, you know, there's water all around the area. I didn't, I just, you know, just kind of looking at, you know, like some kind of, uh, pattern is you know we start looking at these uh, 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 different humanoids uh, across America. Is there some, you know, just wondering? Is there some kind of pattern like with you know water features? Uh, you know, Keel does uh, talk about uh, you know UFOs or attracted to the native uh, mounds mm-hmm. kind of like in you know one of the er, uh, er, early stages of you know the mothman prophecies is are there uh, um, you know, any kind of um, prehistoric features cultural remains something like that in the the van meter area That's a good question. I mean, the entire Midwest, we are definitely known for, um, yeah, the effigy mounds, which I know Linda Godfrey, too, um, another Wisconsin researcher, actually, has tied sightings of uh, specifically uh, dogman or man wolves to the effigy mounds. Mm-hmm. So that, that could definitely be part of it. Um, on the topic of water, too, though, that's a very interesting point, because a lot of researchers have also brought up the water connection in regards to the paranormal. I know Ivan Sanderson uh, wrote Invisible Residence, which kind of detailed specifically UFO encounters and water, that there's a huge connection between those two things. And there was another article I just read, I wish I could remember who the author was, that even tied sightings of the infamous black shuck or the black dogs, uh, of course, of European folklore to water, that many of these sightings occur either directly, like right on coastlines or rivers and lakes. Um, two sightings of the black shuck. So I do think that there has to be a connection to some of these occurrences and the natural features or, yeah, the cultural features of that area. And it could even be multiple things. Um, I mean, I wonder, too, if the composition even of, you know, the minerals in the area or the rocks in the area might possibly Mm -hmm. have something to do with that or 
you know, of course, waterways and how they connect. I mean, if we're looking at these things on an energetic scale, there would be certain things that could affect that as far as I'm concerned. Well, you brought up the effigy mounds. Uh, those are, am I thinking the right ones with, uh, it, 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 there's like uh, 12 or 13, like, uh Outlines of uh, bears and deer that go across a hilltop. Is that the oh, right yeah. one? And, and, and um, it, yeah, I, I, there some type of identification you know, between like the bear effigy and the this, you know flying humanoid creature and it's got two animals I I just wonder if there was some connection there I I, I don't know I'm just kind of throwing out some possibilities yeah definitely I think that yeah like I said Linda Godfrey really looked into that in one of her more recent books and yeah in Wisconsin especially I know I think we have if I'm thinking correctly, we have thousands still in existence. And of course, there were many more that uh, were completely destroyed in the early days of uh, the pioneers and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that there might be a connection even between the different shapes and paranormal sightings. But the stronger connection is even that it seems like paranormal occurrences do tend to congregate just near any of them. And like you pointed out, Keel did even point that out as far as UFO, UFO activity um, in the early pages of the Mothman prophecies. It seemed to really congregate over the sites of these ancient mounds. So it's a real you know, chicken or the egg sort of thing, though, because you wonder then, were the mounds put there to kind of commemorate or mark certain energies? Or was it some process by which they were put there that kind of caused these energies to be? Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's really a, really a puzzle. Yeah, and you know, with, with you know, your recent interview with Chad Lewis, you know, he's uh, covering uh, the uh, Wendigo Bigfoot creature. Uh, you know, these you know, creatures out of uh, you know, Mythology, uh, you know, you get like you know something similar, like like the Minotaur out of Greek mythology. You know, all all these cultures have these um, different uh, kind of creepy animals that I I don't. Maybe they're attracting um, other. Anomalous uh, beasts. I don't know. It's, uh, you know, Chad, Chad made some good points about uh, that Bigfoot type animal. Or just, just I'm still trying to think of yeah. trying to make some kind of connection there. Well, it does seem like, I mean, every culture has just a veritable crypto zoo, really. Yeah, they do. Of, yeah, different, you know, anomalous creatures and things like that. Things that, of course, conventional science says should not exist, but, 
yet people even to this day are reporting them. And yeah, the Wendigo is really making a comeback. And part of it is due to the fact that there have been recent sightings, um, which I'm sure Chad is Chad and Kevin Nelson are detailing in their new book. And it is, it's a very terrifying myth. It's of this, you know, cannibalistic creature. And it is very distinct from Bigfoot, which tends to be, even though, of course, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, if you're confronted with an eight foot tall Sasquatch, you're going to be a little bit spooked. There's really not the same level of like fear response. You know, a lot of people even say that it comes across as gentle or friendly, whereas mm-hmm. the Wendigo is absolutely the opposite. And so it is, it is interesting though, because it is true. There is across every world culture, just more than a handful of these assorted myths and legends which kind of have a basis in fact. I am a firm believer that a lot of legends really, they have to have their basis somewhere. And the interesting thing, and I can't remember who pointed it out, is that where we are currently with, you know, conventional science, just saying, well, this can't exist because it can't. You know, back 100 years, it really would have just, cryptozoology would have just been viewed as another branch of zoology. I mean, it's really just looking for things that people are saying that they're seeing and experiencing. And really, I think that's, that should be the point of science itself is to kind of discover that which we don't yet know. So hopefully we're kind of moving towards that. I don't know. I won't hold my breath, but I can be hopeful. Look, it, it, you know, when you know, you're, we're introducing some of the characteristics of the, um, a Van Meter uh, visitor, uh, you know, you brought up that it was uh, exuding some kind of uh, mist, and it had a you know a, a horn is you know kind kind of like a. Uh, nightmares distortion of uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. It, it is, it, uh, you get the red eyes with uh, Mothman, but d- does this, uh, you know, you might get like the dragon breath type uh, descriptions, uh, you know, included into, you know, 15th century uh, paintings, but it, it, it does uh, do a lot of these uh, um, you know, creatures uh, from mythology and folklore. Uh, is, is there a lot of literature on like this uh, breathing mist type trait? Yes, it's a very strange part of these encounters. Um, There's actually an article that uh, Steve Ward sent me from one of the old magazines that John Keel wrote on gas attacks by flying saucers. Um, In the current literature, you'll see it often associated with UFOs and UFO occupants. But to go back a little bit further, in the 1800s, you also have the case of the Spring-Heeled Jack, which was known to paralyze his victims with some sort of mist. And that also kind of ties into Ooh. the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, which was from Illinois, I believe, in the 50s, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, wow. And that I, was the case. Oh, yeah, that was the of case one. of this um, prowler who would go around 
uh, spraying some sort of mist or gas into the houses of these just unsuspecting people in Mattoon, Illinois. And again, it's one of those anomalous things where it just flared up for a while and then went away. And I think that's the weirdest thing about a lot of these is that so often you'll have something that just it kind of flares up and it's there for a while and no one can really figure it out and no one can find you know the perpetrator or the creature and then just as suddenly it's gone um and this even you know it's interesting too because then these places it's not to say that all the unexplained phenomena goes away a lot of them like i mentioned with van meter and point pleasant have a huge history of unexplained phenomenon it's just that there'll be that one thing, such as the Mothman or the Mad Gasser of Mattoon or the Van Meter Visitor, that just causes a big ruckus for some period of time, and then it's just absolutely gone. Yeah. Okay, so the, the Van Meter Visitor was there for five days. Uh, it's the, the Illinois case. Uh, did you say it, it was there for just a short uh, around town for a short period? Yeah, if I remember correctly, it was a period of either a couple of weeks to maybe oh. a month or two, if I okay. remember correctly. Yeah. Okay, and, uh, and the Mothman was cited for about a 12, 13-month period. Is that about right? Yeah, it was 13 months pretty much to the day uh, between the first sighting and the last one. Okay. Hmm. What's it? Is, is that pretty uh, standard with uh, – and it seems like the Mothman case might be a little uh, longer than usual. Oh, yeah, the Mothman – in my mind, really stands out just because it did stick around for so long. And there was just, it was just like a paranormal parade. I mean, aside from the Mothman, you had UFOs, you had poltergeist activity flaring up, uh, men in black phenomenon. There was just really so much going on at that time. And the fact, too, that John Keel was in the area pretty much constantly. I mean, every now and again, he'd have to go elsewhere, just keeping up on everything and keeping up with witnesses and taking everything down. And there are other investigators in the area, or at least interested as well, just completely adds to it to being one of the most well-documented cases we have of paranormal phenomena. Yeah, yeah there obviously were the wings with the uh, Mothman. Uh, did he, yeah, the the, the uh, you know, what type of wings did the Van Meter visitor have? You know, is it like bat wings? Like, you know, does that make a difference? Because you, know, so, so, you know, there are a few cases of some of these flying humanoids that are bioluminescent. Oh yes, and. Yeah. Yeah, and then you get like different types of wings too. I was just wondering if like yeah, you know, there's another pattern emerging with the the wing structure. See, and that is kind of another very interesting thing is that a lot of times. See, and I'll admit I came at the paranormal. I've been interested in it since I was a kid, and been researching it 
you know, since I was a kid as well. And I came at it, I loved cryptozoology. And by that, I meant I love flesh and blood cryptozoology. You know, everything's an undiscovered creature of some sort. And then when I moved on to, you know, spectrology and ufology, everything kind of had its own separate corner. And it's after reading Peel's work, really, that I've come to, it's my opinion that a lot of this is interconnected somehow. And that is the thing that you're bringing up with, like, the variations of wings, is that a lot of the skepticism comes from the fact with a lot of these sightings that it would be one thing if we were saying that, you know, every winged humanoid or big bird sighting could look like a pterodactyl or every single one could look like some sort of like big feathered bird. But in reality, we do have lots of these variations. And again, the Van Meter creature is really cited as some sort of prehistoric monster. Uh, you have, of course, Thunderbird sightings, which mm-hmm. look like just very, very large as far as we could consider them normal birds. And then you do have the winged humanoids, such as Mothman, which, I mean, the the issue with those, too, is that oftentimes the wingspan is not great enough for the being to be able to take flight, yet it does. And that's where a lot of the really dogmatic skepticism comes from, if you're still looking at it from a physical angle, is that, well, okay, maybe we could try and fit one of these things into our worldview. But when you ask us to, you know, stand by literally dozens if not hundreds of variations that's when a lot of people just decide to give up on it i guess well yeah i i i think i read some brief article i heard you know i heard somewhere that you know people like scientists have uh studied the aeronine Dynamic designs of uh, like uh, Leonardo's uh, Gabriel from you know, his Annunciation painting, and they're like, oh, you know, that uh, angel, you know, really couldn't fly, you know, due to the positioning of the wings. <clears throat> but uh, even with you know. The 1903 case, and uh, you, know, you know the Mothman uh, case. Uh, what, like 63 years later? Uh, it, it, there does seem to be this. Uh, th- you know, there should be an inability to fly. But yet the, the documented cases show that you know the Mothman is flying at like a hundred miles an hour over the mm-hmm. Scarberry's car. Uh, it, yeah. It's uh, yeah that that's actually an interesting point you make. And then you know we're back to the uh, horn off on the van. Uh, uh, for some reason, it just kind of caught me off guard. It's, it's, it, uh, but it, it, you know, there is a, an aerodynamic or uh, I don't know what you call it. It it, it goes it, yeah. It, it, it's like uh, it defines physics for it to work, but it does. 
Absolutely. And the interesting thing, too, especially with the Mothman, is that a lot of the witnesses were very distinct on the point that it did not flap its wings, that it would just be standing on the ground, wings outstretched, and then all of a sudden it just took off with no movement whatsoever. And so, again, that's another just impossibility, Mm -hmm. aside from the fact still that we're grappling with the fact that the wings, I believe, for a man-sized thing to fly, they need to be about 30 feet wide. And the Mothman, they said it was about like a man with his arms outstretched. So that is nowhere near 30 feet. And yeah, so again, this thing technically should have been impossible, yet there it was keeping pace with the car. And the interesting thing with that too is that behavior, that of keeping pace with something, you'll notice that across every paranormal field. I mean, I I just recently did a run of videos on the airship of 1896-97, and you have reports of these anomalous lights in the sky keeping pace mm-hmm. with trains. There wow. have been many Bigfoot encounters where the Bigfoot will keep pace with a person. I know that the Ridgeway ghost is kind of a folktale in this area, but I do believe that there's probably some truth to it. And there are several accounts I've read where the ghost apparently uh, kept pace with travelers or carriages. And so, again, this, this single predisposition of these things, you just see them time and time again, except it's across the board. It's not simply winged humanoids or UFOs or ghosts or Bigfoot. It's all of these. And now, sure, I am still – see, there are a few things. Like, I'm still holding out that Bigfoot might possibly be some sort of undiscovered primate. For some reason, that one just – old habits die hard, and I can't give up on – uh, Bigfoot just yet. Um, I do believe that there are many sightings, though, that don't match up to that idea, and that's a completely different issue. Um, but really, you know, when you see the same behavior across the board, it just it becomes a little bit more than coincidence, in my opinion. Yeah, Zulia, what you know, you know, you've presented some uh, similarities. Uh, between the Iowa and you know, Mason County flying humanoids, uh, you know, a few differences. Um, you know, in the intervening sixty-three years, is do you think there could be any possibility that? This creature migrated from Iowa to Mason County, uh, West Virginia. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's the same species of flying humanoids. You know, for example, the horn. But uh, uh, it's just you know, could could there be something like that going going on? Like you know. Did, uh, Disappeared into a coal mine that's never been seen again. Uh, uh, you know, could could have you know, hit, hit until the townsfolk left. And I you know, heard. Uh, is there? I I I I'm just throwing out a, a question. I, I I just have an interest in you know like migrations of like uh, a a small family of 
surviving pterodactyls. That is a theory I've heard kind of tossed around a little bit. And I'm not going to go out there and say it's not a possibility because I, you know, I don't, I don't like to really exclude any possibility unless there is proof against it. I do find it highly unlikely is what I'll say, but that is, I've heard that in relation to other things too, especially well in the case of Van Meter, given that it did disappear underground. I know there is a strong theory in cryptozoology, especially that there could be a whole network of caverns and caves and things like that, where these things kind of pass unnoticed. So I won't exclude it as a possibility. I do think that, um, in my opinion, at least, it's probably not a very strong one just because of the marked differences uh, between the two creatures as well. Uh, the Mothman mm-hmm. was definitely more of a humanoid than the Van Meter creature. But, yeah, I've definitely seen it as a theory, though. Okay. Well, the Sandhill Crane explanation just doesn't add up. No. Oh, no. The the only thing worse that I've seen for that is when some organization came, I can't remember who it was or who it was, the FBI or just the local police, came forward to say that the Dover demon was likely a baby moose. That was the only thing that measured up to as, like, the Sandhill Crane explanation for the Mothman. <laughs> I mean, okay, fine. If it was a Sandhill Crane, I would like to know why the men in black were so interested. That's what I'll say. Good, good, good point. <laughs> so, so we're, you know, when, um, yeah, you know, I, I'm gonna have to get, uh, Chad's book and, and get get him on at some point and and get the comprehensive view of the uh, story and ha- you know ha- have him explain it. But you know. Uh, with the Mothman uh, prophecies, you know, Keel does work in uh, orbs at th- throughout his nearly uh, year-long residence in uh, Point Pleasant, Pleasant, while he studied the um, you know, Mothman uh, story that was unfolding about on a daily basis and when he and Mary Hire uh, went on their night expeditions to see uh, uh, like UFOs over the Ohio River and uh, other vantage points uh he he did report um orbs uh glowing uh, spheres uh going through the chief cornstalk national forest and uh, i think some were uh, over the ohio river were there uh yeah, these spheres, orbs uh, associated with the um, Van Meter visitor? The initial reports were of lights in the sky. The newspapers, and you'll see this time and time again uh, in papers of, you know, that turn of the century era, 
sometimes they go into a lot of detail and other times they get a very vague sort of description. So as far as I know, they did refer to them as lights in the sky. Whether they were strictly orbs or not kind of remains up for debate. But the light phenomenon in general is very, very interesting. I know that Keel in Operation Trojan Horse, which was an amazing book that totally changed my mind on the UFO phenomenon, it kind of was his opinion, especially in regards to UFOs, that these softer sightings of orbs or even anomalous lights, which yeah, you're correct in saying that in the area of Point Pleasant during that time, there was just constant activity of these, you know, orbs, yes, and other forms of just kind of glowing anomalous light blobs. He talks about the purple mm-hmm. blobs quite a bit. And he was of the opinion that these sightings might possibly be, and in, in his mind, were likelier more important than the so like the hard and fast sightings of craft or saucers or cigarette shaped objects. So, and they are they are often reported in conjunction with other types of paranormal occurrences. Yeah, and I I had a uh, question from my buddy Carlisle. Rachel and she she, she want to know like is there like any kind of meaning behind the uh, different colors of orbs? Some people believe there is. Uh, it varies greatly depending on who you talk to. I haven't looked very much into that portion of the orb phenomenon. And But, yeah, some people definitely give a lot of importance to the different colors. I know some people, particularly when you're dealing with ghost orbs, you know, can say that they receive messages or see images or faces in them. Um, and then you go into abduction lore, and that's actually very interesting, too. That is filled to the brim with orbs, and a lot of them are given to be almost messengers. And it's a very interesting concept. It's an interesting belief. Um yeah. Okay. So, okay, you really put the hooks in me with the faces in the orbs. Um, what what's that all about? Is that something like there's a an image trapped in time? What uh, What's your take on that? It depends really on what you're talking. I mean, I do believe sometimes, you know, I have to kind of maintain a balance of Mulder and Scully. I do think sometimes people can do sort of visual matrixing. Uh, you know, it just happens to the best of us where you can see something that aligns and it's not really there. Um, I'm sure, though, there are, like, other cases, too, and this is actually interesting in regards to UFO orbs, because Skinwalker Ranch, um, which, of course, I'm sure you're all very familiar with, there was a sighting that orbs where it appeared that there were actually, like, beings or entities inside of them. So I think that it can vary greatly. A lot of the times it does appear as though there's something kind of encapsulated in them. Hmm. Cool. Okay, yeah, there were also... Uh, you know, if you go back and listen to uh, you know one of Barbara's shows on uh, you know the Phoenix Lights with uh, Dr. Lynn Katai and you know it's in, in her book too you know you know they spoke about 
the orbs that seem to precede the um, huge ship that was uh, had a um, mass sighting over Phoenix. Uh, it's yeah that seem uh, these orbs just seem to be part of all all these unexplained phenomena oh yes and two another really classic example is uh, Jenny Randall's wrote about the Pennine UFO encounters and just general paranormal phenomena that was going on there and apparently orbs did often precede or come after major UFO sightings. And she also noticed that a lot of people who became, you know, repeater experiencers, especially in this case, early in their life would have an experience with an orb or light ball phenomenon, as she called them. So there is a definite connection between orbs and other paranormal occurrences. And I know they have been seen before UFO sightings. They've been seen in conjunction with other types of UFOs that appear to be more like craft. It's, it is very interesting. The proximity to these different events is definitely more than coincidence. Yeah. It, I, I, you know, as, you know, we've you know, been underway for, uh, 45 minutes doesn't seem, seem like it, but it, it, yeah, as I was uh, you know, doing some show prep and uh, uh, was going through in you know, the Mothman prophecies, um, uh, Keel does discuss uh, towards the uh, like the part of his conclusion that. He even says he thought that there was like a, a structured pattern to all these events, and, and it, I thought as 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 we've been talking for nearly an hour, I think you've made a, you know some really good points about all these, um, you know, primarily with the two. Flying humanoid cases and you know the spheres, orbs um, that that there does seem to be a pattern of sightings. Oh yes, I think that there is definitely a pattern between these different types of paranormal phenomenon. I. I do feel like, you know, like I said, I even started out very conventionally minded thinking that these were all separate occurrences because at first glance they would appear to be. But the more, like the further you go into researching any one of these fields, you'll start really having to draw these connections between the other fields of the paranormal. So I would absolutely agree with that statement, that there is, there has to be some sort of yeah structure or pattern to them. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, since since we were uh, you know just talking about uh, patterns, you know, you're uh, putting together a trilogy on these uh, Victorian era 
uh, airship sightings for your uh, YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that pattern uh, uh, you, you developed that pattern through, uh, throughout your first uh, part of that series you know, uh, and at the you know your primary focus was this like 18 what a 97 98 uh, wave in it's kind of like the western part of the country uh, but you know, Keel also mentions that he had the um, Sistersville, uh, West Virginia uh, sighting ha- happening at about uh, uh, the same time. Oh yeah, the sightings really. The airship flap is a very intriguing study, uh, in my opinion, because I am, as I said, I've kind of left the you know nuts and bolts flying saucers behind a little bit, and so I am of the opinion that it's a much larger and stranger phenomenon than your classic 50s flying saucer. And yeah, the 1896-97 flap, it started in 96 in the later half of the year out in California. And then it kind of faded away there in January of 97. And simultaneously, a flap started up that took up most of the rest of the United States. So you do start having sightings you know, on the East Coast, and then moving into Ohio was just a hotbed for these airship sightings. And so, yeah, that was 97 is really when the flap kind of picks up in other portions of the states. And that video is going to be released tomorrow. So if you are interested in Victorian era UFO sightings, tune in. Okay. And uh, go ahead, do a shameless plug of your, your YouTube video channel. Oh, sure thing. It's just another tinfoil hat, and there's no spaces in that. Um, so if you type that in on Google, you'll actually get my website, which has a link to the YouTube page. So, And, yeah, I'm right in the middle now of the airship flap because, you know, I wanted to really do it justice. And, honestly, with the three videos I have, it's barely the tip of the iceberg. I mean, because – and this I'll actually get into in part three – just to tease it a little bit, aside from sightings of anomalous things in the sky, you also have sightings of wild men and black panthers occurring in the area as well. So this does, you know, much like these later flaps, you don't just have one thing happening. You have a whole bunch of things happening. But really the most intriguing thing for me about the airship is the fact that I really feel like it occurs at a point in time when kind of culturally we were experiencing a shift uh, from you know, kind of like the older, more mythic ways of thinking into the technological age. And I just find it really interesting because prior to these flaps, which there were other flaps of airship sightings in Europe in the 1850s, and here and there you have sightings across the U.S. as well. But prior to that, a lot of the times when someone saw something in the sky, it was given a mythic or folkloric connotation. People thought that it was fairies or angels or demons or signs of something. And then, of course, after that, once you hit the 1900s, it took a while. But, of course, right now we are living in the age of the model being extraterrestrial hypothesis for sightings of things in the sky. And the interesting thing is that you have this tiny portion of time 
in the mid to late 1800s through the very early 1900s, where the model was actually these people believed that these were in fact airships being piloted by human inventors. And it's just incredibly interesting because I feel like with this era, we can see the transition from you see a light in the sky, it's fairies, to you see a light in the sky, it's an airship because someone finally figured out how to build the heavier-than-air flying machine, and then eventually now we have the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I mean, someone sees a light in the sky now, immediately they start thinking Martians. So Mm -hmm. the airship flap is, it's really intriguing because you can kind of see that transition happening. I compare it sort of to like flipping a coin, a fairy lore and our modern extraterrestrial hypothesis are two sides of the coin for aerial phenomena. The airship is kind of like the edge of that coin in this era of the late 1800s is really the flip. So, yeah, it's just incredibly intriguing. And do we have an explanation for these waves of UFO sightings? There's like the Hudson River Valley, you know, the one you're talking about in – you know, eighteen uh, around eighteen ninety seven. Uh, you know, there are other you know, uh, cases uh, to of you know, you know the waves. You know, you mentioned some European ones in the eight, 1850s. What what is going on over these uh, towns where you know they're seen, or the you know the uh, farms, or where they were noticed, is you know do we have an explanation for you know why at that moment? Unfortunately, not yet. Of course, there have been tons of theories as to what could possibly be happening. I know some people think that. It may have something to do with geomagnetism, that there might be solar flares. Some other people said that it might be tectonic plates shifting. Um, Other people have brought in astrology to try and deal with it. And I really think it comes down to this base question of, yeah, what is this stuff? Why does it happen? And especially, too, why does it happen here, not there, or at this time, not that time? I know Keel brought up, um, yeah, Keel brought up the solar flares as, possible. He noted that a lot of the times UFO flaps would occur when there was a high amount of solar energy. Um, As to whether or not that stayed the same, it seems like, too, once you kind of nail down one theory, something else will pop up to sort of disprove it. So as far as why it happens when or where, that really hasn't been narrowed down yet. But I, I do think that is a really important question. It's just that true, you know, what variables do you look at? I mean, there's so many things that could possibly influence it. And that's not even bringing in the human factor. I mean, you know, kind of like we tie, we used to tie poltergeists to um, young women with a lot of pent-up emotional distress as like releasing these violent telekinetic energies. And, you know, we've moved kind of away from that, but I mean, that tie, too, is there, especially with UFOs and psychic ability or uh, perceived psychic ability. And so bringing in the human factor, too, are there just, you know, 
is there a certain person or a certain family in town that, sure, maybe they just moved in and suddenly you have a UFO flap. There's just so very many different variables that could affect it. So not yet, but hopefully soon we'll yeah. know what the answer is. Yeah, and it's some of the more uh, pr- prominent UFO cases, you know, seems like uh, it, the crafts are drawn to the uh, nuclear power plants, uh, you know, you Mothman, uh, associated with the ammunition area, you know, the TNT area. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. It seems like there is a connection to um, militaristic uh, sites. Uh, You also have an example in the Mothman prophecies about uh, uh, there was a UFO hovering over uh, what was later uh, you know, uh, discovered to be an un- underground gas line. Oh, yeah. There is a huge connection yeah. between especially UFOs and, you know, power of any sort. I mean, with mm-hmm. the airship, there's actually even an account of the airship hovering over a new hydroelectric plant in California. And when oh, I saw okay. that, I just totally freaked out because even power lines, Keel pointed out that if you wanted to see a UFO, find a crossroads, a garbage dump, or some power lines on a Wednesday night and just wait because these things do seem to show up too around power lines. So I do think there is a connection there. A lot of the more, again, conventionally minded researchers have surmised that maybe they're kind of gassing up at these, you know, power lines or other electrical sort of power sources. Um, I'm not entirely sure about that, but it's interesting too to bring up the nuclear connection because that was something in the Cold War era. All of a sudden you had all these contactees who claimed to have been contacted by these peaceable alien races like the Space Brothers or the Venusians, and all they could talk about was nuclear power and the atomic bomb. So you also have that connection there too, where there did seem to be a special emphasis put on nuclear power. Okay, and quite in you know, your uh, Victorian uh, era of aircraft of video, um, you talk about the. Uh, d- different shapes of the crafts. Um, you know, one had a uh, fish-like tail. Uh, you, you know, read a, uh, you know, a few other examples. Uh, you know, from out of history, like it, there's that uh, one. At uh, the Milvern Bridge uh, battle, it's I, I don't know, it's like uh, at the like 
first uh, century AD or so, so, something like that. It's uh, just outside of Rome, and uh, it was like Emperor Constantine saw a cross-shaped uh, UFO fly overhead. You know, you know, we're back to this, you know. Military um, theme that connects some of the uh, sightings. Yeah, there is a connection there to that as well. I mean, there's also uh, the issue too that UFOs are often spotted on like national nationally related holidays, such as various independence days and things like that all around the world. Um, And of course, some skeptics point out, well, more people are outside looking at the skies. And that may be true, but it seemed very heavily weighted. I think that that was an Operation Trojan Horse that Keel pointed that out. So, of course, he compiled just, I don't know how many UFO cases for all of the research for that book. So there is, it seems to... And this was pointed out by Jacques Vallée, especially in Messengers of Deception, which is an amazing book. It does seem that for as interested as we are in these objects, particularly UFOs, you have to wonder if they're interested in us because they do show up at turning points or at very important things throughout history. And Vallée went so far as to suggest that somehow whatever this phenomenon is might possibly have helped in aiding history move along, which is, you know, kind of a mm-hmm. frightening concept considering we don't know what they are. So there is a connection there, yes, between, you know, government, religion, pretty much any sort of establishment and sightings of unexplained phenomena. Yeah, or, or do, do you think we're le- learning any more about some of these hot spots where they're sighting, like you know, maybe there's uh, something. It was like tr- triggering the 1897 wave, the Hudson Valley, uh, a case it, it is. Are you seeing any kind of uh, reason why at this particular time this area is a hot spot, Point Pleasant for a 13-month period? See, Point Pleasant is a little intriguing. I mean, it's very intriguing, I guess. But I do think that it's it's a very special case. Because the Mothman really showed up and stayed for those 13 months, and then the culmination of a lot of this activity was the Silver Bridge tragedy. So mm-hmm. I feel as though you really can't disconnect the two in regards to the Point Pleasant Mothman. Um, it's kind of my concept. I wonder if sort of the Mothman might be some culturally manifested tulpa that is kind of like mm-hmm. an omen or a representative of something bad is about to happen you know, sort of mankind's latent uh, psychic premonition ability. Um, That's my running theory for the Mothman, because that did seem to be just intrinsically tied to the tragedy that occurred. And, of course, omens are a huge part of many different world cultures. And 
So I think the Mothman really is tied to that. And as far as the actual hotspot of that area, though, I've noticed an interesting trend recently where it seems kind of like hotspots are becoming a little bit more diluted as time goes on. That stuff is happening a little bit more at random. One of my favorite eras to, well, one of my favorite eras in general, but especially to research all this stuff is like the 60s, 70s. And um, I actually just talked to Chad about this on my podcast. You know, you just had so very much stuff going on paranormal-wise in that era. And it did seem to be very concentrated and very strange accounts. And you really, it seems like, you know, stuff is still going on. It just, for some reason, doesn't seem to be as strong. And so I do kind of wonder if, as we move along, and especially with, you know, electronics, and we're very much in the digital age, I kind of wonder if that is somehow, you know, if a lot of these things are, for lack of a better word, like some sort of energy form, or possibly, you know, from the super spectrum, and they rely on a certain set of energies in order to manifest or appear. I am wondering if what we currently have going on just with all of the, you know, just different waves of our own creation, if that's kind of jamming the signal, so to speak. And I think it's funny because in one of Keel's books, I can't remember if it's Mothman or the Eighth Tower, he kind of brought that up. And that was way back in the 70s that he said, you know, we're jamming the frequencies. And I, every time I hit that phrase, I wonder what he'd think of today. It, you know, when, um, you know, you've done your, uh, PowerPoint uh, presentations. You, you have this, and you know, one of the graphs that you uh, sent to Barbara, you know, put together for uh, our YouTube uh, or archive. You know, you know, there's like uh, spec. You know, the, the uh, light wave spectrum, mm-hmm. and you know. Uh, 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 John Keel, uh, you know, incorporated a little bit of that information too. Uh, what do these uh, frequency uh, light waves, uh, sound frequency? Uh, you, know, how does all that uh, material fit into the, this? Uh, study of cryptids and paranormal. Uh, Does it help to uh, conceal them at times? Oh, yeah. In my opinion, the idea of the super spectrum is really probably one of the most groundbreaking in regards to all different types of paranormal activity. And John Keel really was the major proponent of that. And it was his concept that a lot if not all, paranormal activity might be of entities or beings that exist just outside of our visual and audio frequencies. Uh, okay. And, yeah, and so then instead of looking at something like, you know, people are always wondering, okay, why can't we find this thing? You know, especially like lake monsters are one of my favorite examples because you have, you know, pretty self-contained lake. I know they're not super easy to search every nook and cranny. But you have a fairly self-contained area. And if you're looking for a large animal, especially, 
you know, if you're looking for one animal, you have to be looking for a breed of animals in order for them to keep reappearing so people can keep having sightings. And it just, it becomes less and less feasible when you just keep, you're not able to find it, yet there are still sightings. And so the idea with this is that these entities may exist just outside of the visual spectrum. And so instead of them looking for something that is always here and wondering why you can't find it, you're actually looking for something that just intersects here every now and again for reasons which, you know, as we've discussed, are as of yet unknown. And it, it's really, I know it sounds really far out there, but when you have, you know, people reporting walking tree stumps and the Mothman and things like that, you kind of have to re-question what really far out there is. Especially, too, because, and this is something you'll see time and time again, in a lot of different paranormal phenomena, what Keel found is that there was evidence of something passing through the spectrum. He would notice that a lot of times UFOs, when they materialized and dematerialized, would glow this, like, infrared and then pass through to this, like, deep green or ultraviolet. So, of course, that is evidence of something passing through the visual spectrum as opposed to something that's just a stable part of it. And you were mention, mentioning that some of these sightings are just outside of our vision and if Kiel has these, uh, you know, breaks down a lot of these um, sightings as you know, most of them happening on Wednesdays. Mm, yep. uh, most uh, professional people uh, who see have have these sightings or experiences um, are. Uh, teachers. Oh yeah, that is another very interesting thing that I want to launch some large-scale research on, is that a huge number of sightings occur around children. And on the face of it, that seems really creepy, and I'll be honest, with the casual research I've done, it still seems kind of creepy. Because, yeah, especially, you know, just even going through the Mothman prophecies, he had, you know, a pretty intense UFO encounter that occurred right over a school. So that may be why so many teachers are involved, too, because I know going through like so many cases, you will see that a lot of them, it's kids who are the initial witness. And I think, too, there is a separate issue um, dealing actually especially with the super spectrum in regards to children seeing different paranormal phenomenon where, you know, at a very early age, all of our synapses are actually still opening as opposed to being set or closing. So for a brief portion of time, some children neurologically could be able to see or hear slightly outside of the accepted spectrum for adults. And so I think this might be why there are some encounters. I mean, uh, the miracle of Fatima is a perfect example where the children involved saw an object that was far different than what the crowds saw. And even among the children, uh, there were only a select few who heard the voice as opposed to just this loud buzzing. So you'll see that a lot of times, and not even just with children, but that is something that I see a lot is where they will see something an adult doesn't. Now, I know skeptics will look at this and say, well, they're a kid. But in my experience, you know, there's kids making up stories, and then there's a kid trying to understand something that happened. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these accounts seem very genuine. 
And a lot of times the kids are downright afraid by what they saw or just really trying to fit it into their world, which of course is very new and not yet formed. So I think that's a separate issue. But yes, there are a lot of paranormal accounts that just happen around children. And there's a lot of different ways of thinking as to why that would be. Yeah, it it is very interesting. And, you know, like you and Chad were discussing last night, you get these uh, uh, examples from, you know, like the uh, 60s going into the 70s when all this um, you know, kind of paranormal research uh, really started to uh, flourish. And it just seems that um, you know, a lot of uh, John Keel's information has stood the test of time for you know, a little what about 45 years since uh, the Mothman prophecies came out and says, uh, you know, uh, Trojan horse. Oh yeah. There was a period of time apparently where a lot of his books, you couldn't find them anywhere. Um, and I know the second hand, cause Steve Ward told me that seriously, if you wanted to find one of Keel's books, it was like downright impossible. And so I feel like, they're definitely making a comeback. And I am really, really happy about that because his theories are something that, and like, like you mentioned that era, there was a lot of interest in the paranormal and parapsychology. And some of it was very, very seventies and some of it wasn't. And Keels, you know, is just, it has, like you said, it has stood the test of time and I'm sure it will continue to do so. Yeah. Another If if, if someone in the audience were to read the Mothman prophecies, it's really very different from the movie. Yeah. Um, Yeah, there are all kinds of. studies from New Jersey's making like a New York to West Virginia uh, connection and it, 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 uh, some of these uh, really uh, freaky uh, like men in black uh, people with the wires going down their legs uh, that was <clears throat> a uh, un- unnerving Seen, but he also uh, uh, touched uh, upon uh, the Flatwoods monster case. You know, uh, we had Andrew on. What was it back in September? I think from the uh, Flatwoods Monster Museum. Um, that that. Uh, preceded the Mothman uh, uh, yeah, appearance by what about 13 years or so, 13, 14 years. Uh, 
you know, you've been really interested in that case as well. Uh, what attracted you to the Flatwoods Monster? Boy, well, there's a few things, actually. I mean, the first one being it is such a classic case. I mean, and that's the really interesting thing, and that's what a lot of my videos have been about, are just these classic cases that, you know, I remembered reading casually when I was just into cryptozoology when I was a kid, and I kind of, like, go back and revisit them. And the amazing thing is that so many are considered to be classics in their field, you know, whether it's cryptozoology, like the Enfield Horror, or uh, the Flatwoods Monster is considered a classic UFO occupant case. And what I really find is that after reading Keel, there's a lot of high strangeness involved, you know, just a lot of stuff that doesn't really fit the conventional theories about him. And that's the interesting thing, really, too, with the Flatwoods Monster, is that you have this thing that is, it is like some sort of very sci-fi 1950s movie monster. I mean, it's described as looking kind of like a robot. It had these glowing flashlight beam eyes and it was right near a UFO. And that's what's very interesting about it is that this is exactly, if you're like asking for the perfect kitschy 1950s sci-fi movie encounter, you have the Flatwoods monster. And it's one of those things where it's almost too perfect to be exactly what it seems. And I feel that way a lot about particularly UFO encounters. So many of them, it's the perfect narrative of, oh, look, a downed saucer and all of a sudden you have occupants. And again, after reading Keel, the perfection is something I tend to question. And the interesting thing with the Flatwoods monster that tipped me off really is that it's exactly to what we should be expecting if we're looking at the extraterrestrial hypothesis to account for UFOs. Because, of course, you know, if we send astronauts out into space, they have to wear protective gear. And, of course, if we were landing on any alien planets, I mean, anyone who's seen the Alien franchise knows what happens when you take the mask off. So we should be looking for, with UFO occupants, you know, hazmat suits or drones or rovers, robots. But instead, and again, the Flatwoods Monster is the case that really made me start thinking about this. Because in that case, you do. You have this very robotic entity associated with a UFO is that most UFO occupants are not wearing protective gear and they appear to be biological entities, but that's a completely different um, other issue from the Flatwoods monster. And that case is again, really interesting. And it was investigated really well at the time. Ivan Sanderson was one of the lead investigators for that. And he's another one of my favorites as well. But yeah. And that one too, it started with, apparently a crashed UFO, this huge glowing kind of infrared sort of object that crashed into a hillside. But the interesting thing, and this was pointed out in Sanderson's Uninvited Visitors, is that that wasn't the only object seen on that date. There were apparently, I believe, about 10 other objects exactly the same viewed in the area, all passing on the same trajectory. However, the Flatwoods monster was only associated with that one, though there were sightings apparently of... Um, well, the people involved in the sightings after that claim that they saw some sort of lizard-like humanoid. So it is, it's it's very interesting. And again, it's a classic, classic UFO occupant case. And then the more you look into it, there's just a lot of weirdness involved, including apparently uh, the men in black visited one of the main witnesses after the event. She said that these two men in neat black suits wanted to see the landing site. 
And so she took them to the landing site and the one went into the brush in his nice black suit and apparently took some samples and promised she'd hear back and she never did. So again, very weird, lots of different stuff going on with that. Okay. And if the listeners are enjoying your astute observations of so many different uh, examples we've covered uh, tonight. Uh, you, you are going to uh, be speaking in April uh, just north of uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. So right? Yes. Oh, yes. I'm super excited to be speaking at the Butler Paranormal Conference. Uh, April 25th, I believe it is. And yeah, my topic actually is going to be UFO occupant clothing. Um, it's I wrote a short article on that topic for Alternate Perceptions magazine. And that was kind of kicked off by the Flatwoods monster and just kind of how that's the antithesis of so what so many UFO occupants actually look like. So that's my topic. And I'm yeah really, really looking forward to it. So. Okay. So- I know, you know, Braxy um, is, you know, maybe one of the few uh, examples of a uh, clothed alien, Um, like a couple of the ones that visited Reverend Carter uh, were wearing some kind of like tinfoil type Mm -hmm. suit. Um, That, uh, you know, the clothing topic, um, I I didn't, I didn't know what your, you know, it was going to be, but yeah, you don't really hear a whole lot about the clothing. Are, are there other than the couple examples I just you know, happen to remember? Um, are there a lot more um, examples of um, alien clothing? Oh yes, it's it is again, really interesting, which is why I decided to use that as my topic, because yes, most alien, like alien, or UFO occupants, they are wearing clothes. It's just that it's never, you know, a space suit or a hazmat suit or anything that we would be expecting. And I've thought that over too. And, you know, of course the natural assumption then is that, okay, well maybe they have some sort of controlled atmosphere, but then you have cases where humans, the witness to the event is sharing the same space or goes into the craft of course, mm-hmm. in abduction cases with the entities, and the human's able to breathe just fine and exist just fine, and the occupants are as well. And so that posed an issue for me because if we are dealing with, you know, space aliens from another planet, no matter if they are biologically similar to us or anything like that, I just don't find it likely that they would be able to exist in the same space with no sort of protective gear or hazmat suit or, you know, breathing apparatus as us here on earth. And 
So the interesting thing, though, and this is what I'm going to get into kind of is the study of their clothing. A lot of the times, you know, sometimes you will have, I know there was a rash of sightings in the late 50s to the early 60s where people were seeing things in diving suits. And then as soon as that faded out, all of a sudden, one of the predominant sightings was of the grays. And so not only do you have these trends that kind of come and go, but across the board, you have, you know, like the famous Simonton encounter from Eagle River, Wisconsin, with uh, Joe Simonton and the alien pancakes, one of my personal favorite cases. He said that the entities, they looked like small Italian men, and they were wearing two-piece suits, black suits, with turtlenecks and little knit caps. And so this sort of thing, these descriptions pop up all over the place too. And, you know, you'll see this kind of mimicked then in earlier fairy lore. There's a lot of similarities there, uh, mm. especially too, like red caps make an appearance a lot or yeah, shining uh-huh. suits, like you mentioned, the tinfoil suits. So I wonder at the cultural significance of these images kind of, because if, you know, if we are dealing with something that Obviously, if it's not a practical use, such as a spacesuit or something to protect them, we can only assume then that it must serve some other use, you know, that it might be to convey something. I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that these trends and these images are definitely worth studying, especially, too, for the symbolism that might be involved. I mean, this is kind of a step away, too. But the dress of different paranormal entities is, I mean, I like costuming. It's one of my hobbies, I guess you could say, is an interest in costume. Costumes. And so this stuck out to me because, of course, you have the men in black with their ill-fitting, out-of-style suits. Uh, mm-hmm. You also have the infamous man in plaid or man in the checkered shirt, which is a huge paranormal archetype. And you just start to have to wonder, is there a symbolism to this? Is there possibly some sort of cultural significance to this? And I don't know, hopefully something emerges. I mean, it's an interesting study anyway. Yeah, or the, no, the, the... You get the uh, some of the wreckage uh, d- does seem to be uh, different types of metals, but it's like a metal that uh, is not known to modern humans. Or well, it's you know, uh, yeah, your speech. Uh, j- just sounds like it's going to be uh, really fascinating with the, you know uh, the reasons that they are wearing them, you know, other than you know just to be. It's more than just being modest. Yeah, yeah, I know it is. It's just, I mean, and you have to wonder too, because so many of these sightings. Yeah they appear to have strong symbolic significance. And so I just, I wonder if, you know, every detail might carry that same significance. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's even, you know, the fact that the men in black often have um, a gold medallion or they've often been seen actually wearing golden crosses. Gold is very prominent in their dress as well. I mean, it's all these little details that just kind of Mm -hmm. stick out and they just seem just absolutely intriguing. So... Okay. Well, I I don't want to stay on that subject too long. You want people to go see see your uh, presentation, uh, but but that's going to be 
on April Saturday, April twenty fifth. Yes. But Butler County, Pennsylvania, is there a website for it that people can so. go to? I believe so. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure it's on Facebook too. If you just look up the Butler Paranormal Conference, it should pop up. Okay. So. And, okay. And, and you you um, mentioned the what was that? Um, I lost lost my note of the the uh Enfield monster. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, uh what's the story behind the Enfield monster? The Enfield horror is one oh, of my that's... absolute favorite. Yeah, Enfield monster, Enfield horror, it goes by many names. Um it just it sounds like a B movie kind of the Enfield horror. But anyway, um, it's one of my favorite. I mean, I say that about so many cases. They're all kind of my favorites, but this one is pretty near the top because it's just so bizarre. It was 1973 in um, Enfield, Illinois. Apparently, again, it started too. The initial witnesses were kids. Their parents had been gone for the evening. And when they were, when the parents returned home, they found their kids just absolutely petrified, saying that there was a monster trying to get in the house. And so, of course, they thought it really couldn't be a monster. I mean, nobody really jumps to that conclusion. But then they start hearing the scratching at the door. So the father goes to see what it is, thinking it's obviously some sort of hoax or something like that. And he's greeted by this, like, four-and-a-half, five-foot-tall grayish thing that had pink eyes about the size of flashlights, uh, two short taloned arms, and then three legs. And so it makes this, he actually did what, you know, he thought was right at the moment and grabbed his rifle and shot at the thing. And it responded by making a hissing noise. And this is another thing that comes up time and time again in relation to uh, sightings of paranormal creatures is that people will try and fire at them or, you know, cause them some sort of bodily injury because they're freaked out. And, it doesn't really do anything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, I mean, the Kelly Hopkinsville Hobgoblins are another perfect example. They were fired at pretty much point blank, and they responded by flipping over in midair and then just kind of crawling away. And so, true to that, the Enfield Horror just made a hissing noise and then bounced off into the night. And so, again, I think over the next couple of days, um, people were claiming to hear it. They said that it made this creepy, like, screaming kind of wailing noise in the area around Enfield. And apparently it even stepped on someone's foot uh, near a railway track. And he said that it felt like it was covered in slime. And it is, it's one of my favorite cases because, and this is sort of in line with what we were talking about earlier. Nowadays, I mean, yes, there are sightings every now and again of true outliers, you know, things that don't really fit into any neat and tidy pile of the paranormal. But really most often, a lot of current sightings do, you know, it's like Bigfoot, man, wolf, um, Thunderbird, things like that. But this case, I don't know where you would start to even try and categorize the Enfield horror just because I mean, three legs, pink eyes, it just, it doesn't make any sense. And two, there's another interesting thing, which is that 
it was trying to get in the house. Apparently, before the parents came home, it was even scratching at the air conditioner unit. And you'll see that every now and again with the paranormal, where these entities do seem to have an interest in getting in the house. And, of course, the Kelly Hopkinsville case is another classic example of that. Um, there was a Bigfoot case, too, that was covered in one of Keel's books that was very similar. And that is super creepy. The creepier thing to me almost is the fact that, as far as I know, not many of these t- attempts actually make it inside, which you'd think if it is some sort of you know, supernatural monster, it could do whatever the heck it really pleased. So, yeah, no, the Enfield Horror is it's a very strange case. You know, we're going to have to address the extra appendage. Um, yeah, you really, you know, the third leg, could that be uh, misidentified as a tail or that one just, you know, a third leg just really uh, is seems like it's almost a solitary example of the the strangeness we've been talking about tonight. Oh, exactly. That's what just really takes it over the top for me. The interesting thing is that at the time, the authorities were saying, well, maybe it was an escaped kangaroo. And again, too, you'll see this all the time where the monsters obviously escaped something or other. Apparently the Air Force's conclusion on the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins is that they were, um, it was a hoax perpetrated by escaped circus monkeys painted silver. So unfortunately there were no escaped silver circus monkeys in the area. And it was the same with the Enfield Horror. People ask, well, are you sure it couldn't have been an escaped kangaroo? And the issue is, is that one of the prominent witnesses actually had been stationed in Australia for some time and so was very aware of what kangaroos looked like. No, that was not a tail. That was a third leg and was very adamant about that point. So, and see, this is interesting too. I think that Lauren Coleman sort of tied, because he actually investigated the Enfield horror at that time. And he ties it in a little bit to the phantom kangaroo phenomenon, which is the issue of all of these kangaroos turning up in places where they shouldn't, notably Wisconsin. We have a bunch of them here for some reason. And a lot of the times, the reason he refers to them as the phantom kangaroos is they'll just kind of bounce through town and then be around for a few days and then go away. And no one really knows where they came from or where they went. So, but no, with the Enfield monster and see, this is the interesting thing to me is that again, as I've mentioned a few times, I am of the opinion that, you know, paranormal occurrences I think are due to some sort of phenomenon that is kind of transitory through our portion of the spectrum, our home, so to speak. And if that is the case, you know, a theory in this too is that possibly these things are projections from some sort of other energy or other intelligence. And there are some other cases too, like the Dover demon, where I have to wonder what happens if you get a mangled projection? You know, what if they are just, you know, what if this was supposed to be maybe a phantom kangaroo, but it just, it came out with a third leg instead of a tail. So I know it, again, another really super far out there theory, but you know, when you are faced with something as strange as the Enfield Horror, you kind of have to wonder. Okay, so we the phantom kangaroos, silver silver monkeys, and the sandhill cranes and and swamp gas. Oh yeah. Yeah the the 
usual oh, bunch of explanations to just say it it never happened it's don't forget weather balloons i think those yeah, should be stable <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah even you know you know with most of what we've discussed discussed tonight um you know it, it, it's not just uh you know, the, the, these paranormal e- events that have happened to just one person who was, you know, just happens to be a good storyteller and can convince the police to go out and investigate and, you know, you know the police write up something and, you know, the word gets around town. And it, it's not one person generating uh like a, a word of mouth and, and embellishing uh, some kind of uh, a mat, you know, Harvey the Rabbit type thing. It, 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 um, a, a lot of what you've discussed is actually part of a mass uh, sighting. Yeah, that is that is the case with a lot of these. And, you know, and a lot of the times, too, people who experience something they can't explain. Yes, there are people who who will use that to try and gain notoriety or bank in on it. But most of the time, the predominant thing you hear is, I wish I wouldn't have seen this. And of course, there is always the fear of ridicule as well to come forward and actually discuss what you've seen because people are just, oh, you know, so and so is crazy. I mean, again, to bring up Joe Simonton, he said after the fact that he just wished he, you know, wouldn't have said anything about it, his mm-hmm. experience. And so more often than not, these are these are normal people who just kind of want to carry on with their normal lives. And then something happens that makes them really question that. And a lot of the times, too, you'll see that they report it because they feel like they should or they feel like they need to. You know, the public should know about this. Maybe the police can do something about this. And more often than not... You know, by the time anyone gets there to investigate, too, that is another issue is that a lot of the times, whatever happened really is past. You will have every now and again continuing activity or, you know, the phenomenon leaves some sort of trace. But even in cases of trace evidence, it is kind of just, you know, the way our culture is and has been especially. We just don't really want to be bothered by UFOs or ghosts or Mothman. You know, people just, they have their routine and they really want to stick to it, especially once you start involving, you know, yeah, the police trying to get involved and trying to do something. And I'm not saying this is everyone, obviously. I mean, you have many accounts, too, where the police are just as confused as the witness. Um, and that's even the case, too, I feel like sometimes with even, you know, the Air Force, hence the silver monkey explanation. But, you know, it is, many of these witnesses are just down-to-earth people who are trying to understand something they can't. So, Celia, we're you know we have like you know, about twenty minutes left, or um, but you know, where are you know the paranormal studies, uh, UFO, uh, top you know, ghosts, you know whatever. You know, top topic you want to cover. Uh, 
you know, where is all all of this going? You have, you know, like you mentioned, uh, Lauren Coleman, you know, just really a very uh, prominent name in cryptozoology. Like, you know, nice guy. Just had brief meeting with him, but you know, came away, you know, with a really uh, favorable uh, opinion of him. But you know, he, he you know, he's a very out, outspoken person in uh, cryptozoology. You know, uh, where are people like him taking these studies and so, some of the other? Uh, uh, researchers, where are we going with this information? I really think that we are moving towards kind of a more cohesive look at the paranormal in general. I mean, Lauren Coleman, you know, he is, he's, I mean, I like subscribed to uh, his blog when I was a kid and it was all cryptozoology stuff. And now I know he has his Twilight Language blog on the copycat effect and he's dealing with synchronicity and coincidence and, you know, that side of things. So I really feel like we are moving towards trying to understand why patterns exist between these seemingly different fields. Cause a lot of people still are, and I can understand why very much, you know, if they're into ghosts, they're into ghosts. If they're into UFOs, they're into UFOs. If they're into cryptids, they're into cryptids. Um, and I think that there are still pretty strong boundaries between those, but I really think that we are at a point in this research where the similarities between these different fields, it's just becoming way too obvious, you know, and two, especially if you are only focusing on one of these fields, you know, and you don't want to deal with anything else, what happens when, you know, let's say as a UFO investigator, someone comes up to you and wants to talk about their Bigfoot sighting or something like that. I mean, especially given to the fact that, when you have a place that's a paranormal hotspot, it's not just one brand of paranormal that's there. It's usually a whole number of different things. And to ignore those connections, really, it is to ignore a huge portion of evidence. But I feel like we are moving towards definitely a more accepting view of that. And, you know, hopefully just by looking at the evidence and looking at what people are reporting, it'll bring us to some sort of understanding. Because, of course, that is the basis, really, of paranormal investigation and research is we want to know what this stuff is. Why are people reporting this? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that these questions are incredibly important to society as a whole. And hopefully that is, I think the bigger struggle too, is making this more mainstream. And there's a lot that can be said about that. You know, people feel very strongly about that as well, but it remains that a lot of people, like a good portion of, you know, everyone in the world believes in some sort of, paranormal phenomena or outside phenomena. And so to kind of go on with society as a whole, pretending that's not the case, it really won't serve us in the long run. So I hope that we are moving towards more acceptance so that we can start to understand what this stuff is, why it happens and how it happens as well. Yeah. 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 How did you get involved in all, all the, you know, develop an interest in paranormal uh, in, 
and have a little bit of like a science background uh, from the family. But you know what? You know what really uh, put the hooks into you to you know be able to demonstrate that you know uh, uh, you know you're a a uh, scholar of this material. Well, thank you. Um, I, I do take this, you know, very seriously. It's really important to me. And as far as that question is concerned, I don't really know what got me interested in this. I just, I was always intrigued by this sort of thing, you know, this kind of weirder stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, when I hit like, well, actually when I hit like age eight or nine, my mom showed me the Patterson Gimlin footage because she remembered, you know, hearing about all that when she was growing up and she was like, Oh, you know, this would be interesting. And from there, I just completely latched onto that. And then when I was 10, I went to one of Linda Godfrey's uh, book signings. And then when I was 11, I saw my first um, Chad Lewis presentation. And so to see, you know, these two people like really, you know, this is their life and their livelihood. This is what they do. That just was a total inspiration to me. And i haven't looked back, you know, since that time I have, I've been researching and reading and just everything I can on all of these topics. So, yeah, it is, it's definitely my passion. And, you know, we've covered a lot of, um, major points from, uh, heals, the Mothman prophecies. Yeah, you know, you know, you've touched uh, a little bit on Operation Operation Trojan Horse. Uh, uh, you know, you know, is there another Keel uh, book that really interested you? Uh, is there another author like Jacques Fillet's written a lot on UFO? You know, how about you know, some of the uh, books that uh, had a big influence on you. Oh yeah. John Keel's works are just like, if you can, if you find any of them, they are worth a read. Um, so yeah, John Keel's definitely a huge influence on me and Ivan Sanderson as well. His studies, yeah, Invisible Residence is just incredibly groundbreaking because the way that he goes through and just kind of discusses point by point, these sightings and what he thinks about them from a biology standpoint is just really amazing. Um, Jacques Vallée, too, is, I mean, Passport to Magonia and Messengers of Deception, those are two of my favorites of his. And he really makes the ties, I mean, especially in Passport to Magonia, about um, fairy lore and UFOs, which I think that's a pattern that is absolutely there. So, yeah, Vallée is really good, too. But then Linda Godfrey, all of her books are just amazing. When I was a kid, I think I reread, I don't know how many times, Hunting the American Werewolf and The Beast of Bray Road, the two classics. And she has a ton of other books as well. And, of course, Chad Lewis, all of his haunted road guides to different locations. You know, these all had a huge influence on me kind of growing up in this. And something kind of funny is that um, when I was eight years old, and this is kind of a weird story, there was this one encyclopedia I read because I just, you know, two, first I went to the library and got whatever I could on this topic, which was like about one shelf. So it was, you know, it was a good amount, but not super extensive. There was this encyclopedia of uh, creatures that I read and I loved it. 
And for years, I'm not even joking, it was like my quest for the Holy Grail was trying to remember who the author was, because of course the library got rid of it at some point, I couldn't find it again, and I just remembered really liking it. Well, it turns out, literally last year, I finally got uh, John Keel's The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings. And so I was looking through it, I was super excited, and all of a sudden it hit me, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is that encyclopedia that I read when I was eight years old. And I could never find ever again. And so I just, I do wonder because it is, it has more of an emphasis on the cryptological angle than a lot of his other works, but he brings in a lot of the more fringe aspects, you know, the man in the checkered shirt, the Mothman, UFOs. Mm -hmm. And so I just have to wonder how much of that kind of stuck around in my subconscious waiting how many years later when I picked up the Mothman prophecies. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, but no, all of those guys have been, and yeah, Lauren Coleman too, his books were another, those were some of the earliest ones I read. So yeah, kind of all across the board, I know, but you know, I'm interested in all of it. So. Well, it, it, it is inter- interesting to see, you know, like what you, you and Chad were talking about last night on your show, you know, the what you know what was emerging from the sixties and seventies in paranormal research yeah you know, it's, it's as like little things like the men in black you know, wearing the you know, certain uh, uniforms and you know, the uh other characters wearing uh the checkered uh you know, you know really out outdated uh Outfits, <laughs> but it also you know it shows up in like X Files and some of the other uh, t- TV movies. It's it, like all part of the uh, pattern, and, and you see you know, Chris Carter and you know the X Files typewriters are all going, you know, drawing all their information from. Um, you know, like the Keel books and you know, going, uh, you know, the Coal Shack uh, TV show. You know, like they're all, draw, you know, going, reaching back to that 60s and 70s time period for their their information. Uh, you know, and the X Files was you know, a huge hit in the uh, 90s. Oh, yeah. I will admit to being a complete nerd. The X-Files is like my favorite show, pretty much. I mean, I absolutely love it. And they did. They did draw a lot. Um, It's interesting. I mean, it is obviously fiction, but every now and again, there's an episode where I'm just like, oh, my gosh, they did their research. And mm-hmm. I watch it with my little sister. And so I'll literally be like, oh, my gosh, oh my gosh, you wouldn't get this. And, like, just freak out about some little tiny fact for, like, you know, five minutes. And she's just kind of staring at me like, what's your problem? Um, but, no, a perfect example is Jose Chung's From Outer Space. That episode, I actually had to pause it several times because it was a perfect spoof of John Keel's work. And, you know, this stuff, it is it's serious and should be taken seriously. But on the flip side, you know, John Keel, too, he had, and lots of these authors actually had a great sense of humor. And you can even see that just reading through their works or, you know, if you can listen to any of their presentations, too, you know, it definitely comes through. And so that particular episode, 
I swear, I probably paused that thing like five, ten times just to like take a second. Because, you know, too, it was, you know, this is hefty stuff. But at the same point, there is kind of an air of, you know, ridiculousness sometimes, especially when you get into the men in black. They kind of have this double-edged sword of, like, on the one hand, they're very ominous. They're threatening people. You mm-hmm. know, it would be better if you didn't talk about what you saw. And then on the other hand, they are sitting in a restaurant trying to drink Jello, or they don't know how to use a fork and a knife. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, yeah. yeah. But you can definitely, yeah, and even other episodes, too. I mean... There was one arc in the X-Files, and I didn't realize this until uh, listening to The Big Blackout, which is kind of a collection of some of Keel's personal writings, like his journals at the time. And there's this one huge arc that had striking similarities to this very, you know, arcane Keel material. And so I'm just like, someone in the background of the X-Files, some scriptwriter somewhere had to have had that, because it was just uncanny. Yeah, it's argue encapsulated so so many um, so so many things. All 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 of us grew up watching, or we become aware of just um, through a lot of these talk shows that do, do. Cross a lot of T's and dot I's, and you know this. It, you know this has just been a lot of fun. He, you know, reminiscing about you know, some of the X Files episodes as well. I think tonight's just been just a terrific time, and you know we want to give you a chance to plug. You're sure, you know, we've kind of spoke a little bit about, uh, you know, last night's show with uh, Chad. You've had uh, Steve Ward on uh, a, a couple times. You know, so when does your show air? You know, how do people listen? Oh, sure thing. Well, it's on the uh, Paranormal UK radio network. And so if you go to their website, um, they have links to all the shows. And there's new episodes every other Monday. So I just released one this week, so it'll be two weeks from now that there's another one. And all the old episodes are available for download in Podbean. So, but too, if you just want to go to my website, uh, justanothertinfoilhat.com, you type that into your preferred search engine. I've got links to my YouTube channel, and my podcast. So, and anything else I'm possibly doing at the time. So that's kind of the mothership, so to speak. Okay. And you have the Butler County um, Paranormal Conference on April 20th, Saturday, April 25th. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I'm so excited about that. Okay, and will you be at the Van Meter conference? Uh, is, is that is that one in October? It, it's in the fall, isn't it? Yeah, that one's in September. 
And yes, I will be speaking this year, which I'm super duper excited about too. And the Fan Theater Visitor Festival, it is, it's, it's really just neat too, because you get to see, you know, the area where this stuff was happening. And really, you know, not much has changed in Van Meter since that time. A lot of the old buildings are even still there. So it's just like really cool. Okay. And, okay, uh, you don't know when that. I believe it, it's the last weekend in September. I know it's late September every year. Okay. So. Cool. Okay. Uh, uh, what else do you have going on? Uh, are you working? Are you going to have uh, any anything in a- AP Magazine or do anything with uh, Brent Rains? Um, at some point, yeah, I'm planning on writing another article. I don't know exactly what issue, but planning on getting something um, to alternate perceptions. Yeah, because that was just really cool too. I. I'm big into writing. And so to see, you know, something of mine like in that was just super duper neat. So yeah, I'm planning on doing that. Nothing currently at the moment in the works, but at some point here. And then, yeah, my next video is being uploaded tomorrow. So that'll be part two of three for the airship saga. And I typically try to do new YouTube videos every other Wednesday. Uh, Keep in line with the whole Wednesday phenomenon. But this time I decided just to go boom, boom, boom right after the other. So Part three will be up next week. Okay. And, um, you know, we're get, getting down to about the end, end of the show. Barbara's giving me a little countdown things. Uh, you know, Barbara, do you want to uh, step in and conclude the show? I just want to th- thank you, Zelia, for um, you know, being a – very informative guest. I, I had a great time tonight. I was, you know, re- really looking forward to this for months, and it, it was a great show. So, uh, uh, oh. Barbara, uh, you want to wrap up it? Wrap up. I, I would be happy to. I think it's been a great show too. I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to the two of you. I've learned a lot, and uh, going to be going to research a lot of the stuff that you've talked about. Also, if anybody's interested in any of the Keel books, they can all be found at abebooks.com um, so that if you if you want to search that out, just put his name in the search engine and all of his books do come up. Some of them are used, but otherwise they're really, really, it's a good source of books. So thank you very much for listening. Um, tune in tomorrow. We've got Mary Joyce on. And then, of course, we're back next Monday and Tuesday. So look forward to spending more time with you. But in the meantime, stay warm, stay safe, stay happy, and uh, stay informed by checking out our YouTube channel and all of the interesting interviews we've got there. Till tomorrow, guys. Good night. Have a good one. <laughs>